Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And this is About Books, Book TV's podcast and program looking at the business of publishing. Now, in just a few minutes, we'll hear from John Williams. He's the editor of the Washington Post Book World, which has been relaunched as a standalone newspaper section. But first, here are some of the latest stories from the publishing world. A new report from the literary free speech group PEN America is spotlighting the lack of diversity in U.S. publishing. The report notes that 95% of books published in the U.S., from 1950 to 2018, were written by white authors. Now, while more recent trends show a move toward diversity, PEN America says that publishing remains disproportionately white, both in terms of authors and industry employees. PEN America cited reasons for the lack of diversity, including low turnover rates in publishing, which is delaying the diversification of leadership ranks. Quote, Publishers are the curators of America's stories, the report states. They are gatekeepers who decide whose stories will be told and whose will not. They have a moral and social obligation to ensure that the pluralism of American society is presented more robustly in our literary canon. In other publishing news, the 2022 finalists for the Kundal History Prize were recently announced. This annual award is administered by McGill University in Montreal, and it recognizes the best in history writing. It comes with a $75,000 prize. This year's finalists include Vladislav Zubak for Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union, Ada Ferrer for Cuba and American History, and Taya Miles for All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, a Black Family Keepsake. And now a focus on book reviews and how one major newspaper covers books, authors, and the latest news from the publishing world. Well, the Washington Post's book world as a standalone section is back. John Williams, when did this occur? Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me here. This occurred just a few weeks ago. Uh, The last Sunday in September was the first Sunday that we were back in print. What was the reasoning? Well, the reasoning, I think, was that the readers missed it. Um, it had folded in 2009 as a separate section, although the 
papers obviously continue to cover books. Um, and I think that it was a rare bit of good news in the book coverage world in newspapers, which since the basically the turn of the millennium has been a story of contraction mostly at most papers. Um, so the paper decided to support this relaunch and to get at books in a variety of ways and hopefully uh, both educate and entertain readers well, in the literary world. You are the new editor, but you're not a Washington Post longtime employee, is that correct? I am not. They brought me over from the New York Times, where I'd been for 11 years on the books desk there, uh, which I greatly enjoyed, loved my colleagues there. Um, but this was just such an exciting opportunity to, like I said, I think we've already heard from so many local readers who remember because it wasn't that long ago when they would get Book World on Sundays, and they're just thrilled to have it back. So to be a part of both the legacy of that, but also kind of reimagining it for a new generation is, is really exciting. Well, if you think of the New York Times book review section as kind of the, the grand dame of all book <laughs> review sections, how is Book World different, and how is it similar? Well, the similarities are probably easier just because... To a degree, book reviews are book reviews. If you're interested in, in fiction or, or nonfiction, you're going to find very thoughtful pieces in both places about them. Um, but to the degree that they're different, I think it's there's a slight difference in audiences. I think that DC readers are even more interested in the domestic political sphere and and maybe even more interested in a way uh, in in international relations, you know, such as they are conducted from here. Um, and so that's a foundational core of what we do and will continue to be. Um, and I think the Times probably in recent years has been maybe covering a little bit more of the literary world, the world in translation, poetry, things like that. We're going to bring some of that back, make it a little more robust. Um, but I, they're, they're slightly different animals. It's a friendly competition, I think. Well, how do you define your job as books editor? Oh, gosh. Well, I have a great staff who were already doing great work before I got there. So I've been getting to know them um, they assign the books that we review. My job, though, is to, I think that they've been very busy getting the reviews out. It's been, it is a, it's a churning business. There are new books every Tuesday. You have to figure out which ones you're going to cover, get them to the reviewers. I think my job is to step back and see how we can maybe cover books in a slightly different way in different directions. Um, on the one hand, I think we want to have some longer, more argumentative pieces that sort of launch from books that are out, but kind of make broader statements about what's happening in the culture um, or in the political world. And on the smaller side, I think we want to adopt a little bit of a more of a relationship with social media and places like that and have sort of bite-sized, delightful things for readers to enjoy too because um, there are a lot of dour issues in the world right now that books get at, like everything else does. Um, but I think that thinking about and talking about books should also be a joy. And so we're going to try to lean into that a bit, too. Well, John Williams, will you be writing for the section as well? I hope to be, definitely. Um, but, but for now, I'm really getting my feet under me, learning the team, learning about the perspective that we're going to take on things, trying to freshen up and diversify our roster of writers, which we'll hopefully have news about soon. Um, we're going to hire a couple of staff people, which is great. So we're, we're adding resources to the team. And so we're, we're going to deal with all of that. I have a lot on my plate in those directions. And then... Hopefully, when everything settles down, I'll occasionally be reviewing or writing a feature for the paper. Well, you had the duty of writing the obit for Hillary Mantel recently. Well, no, we had we had a wonderful obit from the, from the obituaries desk there, and I I sort of wrapped up a little bit of the online reaction that was happening around her death. That was such a, um, uh, I think, a really devastating loss for people because she she seemed. First of all, even though she had been in ill health much of her life, uh, there was still something shocking about it. There wasn't really news that she was that sick and she was 70. Um, she also just seemed like someone who, in addition to being a genuine 
genius was just a very good person and delightful, and everyone really loved being in her company. So there were a lot of personal reminiscences, too, about losing her as well as literary ones. And we kind of just wrapped that up for people and gave them a sense of her. For a lot of people who have read the Post book reviews for a long time, Michael Durda is a must-read. Absolutely, yes. I actually just... I'm coming from coffee with Michael Durda, which was a total delight uh, because he's he's full of great stories but also is still completely on top of everything that's going on in the literary world. And he contributes uh, every Sunday. He has a column slash review in the paper, um, which, we're, which we're thrilled to have. What was your role at the New York Times? My role at the Times eventually was uh, I was a staff writer and I was also uh, the, the editor of the Daily Staff Critics there. So... There were three people, and then eventually actually four, um, who were book critics, full-time book critics for the Times, whose reviews appeared then in the art section of the paper, not the Sunday book review. And so I would uh, worked closely with them and edited their reviews. Well, a lot of New York Times reporters write books as well, Washington yes. Post reporters as well. What's it like to review, you know, a, a co-worker's book? Uh, you know, on the one hand, it's um, it's delicate in a personal way, but in a professional way, you just do the job, which is to make sure that, um, you know, you're assigning the books that are important, that Post reporters are writing, there's, and Times reporters, um, but that you make sure that you're getting a reviewer who is going to be fair, like any other review. So someone who doesn't know the person, doesn't have, you know, hasn't expressed strong invective against them in the press before, um, and someone who will give the book a fair shake and tell us what they think of it. And so, and sometimes, you know, there are obviously cases at both the Times and the Post where the review will be less than glowing, but that's that's the nature of the game. Okay, here's a recent book world. It came out uh, October 9th, I believe. You can see President Trump's picture there from back when he was in New York. <laughs> Trump's origins in a hustling New York. This is about Maggie Haberman's new book, Confidence Man, the yep. New York Times reporter. And you got Sean Wilentz of Princeton to write it. Why did why did you ask uh, Professor Wilentz? Well, that was a case, there will be many cases like this going forward, too, where uh, Steve Levingston, who's a longtime editor at The Post, um, who, who handles a lot of the very serious nonfiction and history books for us, had made that assignment, I think, before I even showed up. Um, we're often assigning things two, three months ahead of time, so there are a lot of things in the pipeline right now that, that were assigned before I got there. But it was a brilliant choice. Um, I, I think one of the reasons he reached out to Wilentz, in addition to just um, Wilentz is a terrific writer, um, is that he is a historian and that I think he wanted and got a slightly broader perspective on the book and on Trump's presidency than just what's in the news today, you know, what are the... Because I think Haberman wrote the book, as Wilentz gets at. Um, there are revelations from the White House years, but there's also, I think, the first half of the book really gets into the 1980s and Trump's rise in New York and puts his whole career and, and eventual election in, in a bigger perspective, which Wilentz was... Uh, well-equipped to to think about on that larger scale. So, John Williams, you say something like this is in the works for months. Her book came out, I believe, October 11th. Yeah. This published October 9th, two I, or three months in Yeah, there's, there's to, an asterisk, actually, like on a book like Maggie Haberman's. Um, uh, Steve had the idea to go to Sean Wilentz, but I should say that in this case, Wilentz got the book pretty late in the game. So he turned it around pretty quickly. When there are books like that that are... In the industry, um, I'm sure your viewers have heard of embargoes. Uh, the publisher wants to hold on to the book as long as possible um, to keep any possible revelations from it out of the press. Um, and so we work with the publishers. We try to get them as early as we can, but those are often quicker turnarounds, the more political books um, that are on the actual beat. Well, because of what's revealed in a book like this, yeah. it, 
What's your take on reporters not who cover a beat yeah. holding it for the book instead of reporting it in the newspaper? You know, I think that people who work with daily beat reporters in politics would have a more granular version of this answer because they actually know the, the issues involved in all that. I, my sense is, is that there's there's a little bit of a misunderstanding in the public about what reporters do, how they get interviews, um, and, and when in the process of writing the book those things happened. Um, you know, Peter Baker recently published a book from the New York Times, another really uh, esteemed reporter. Um, Washington Post reporters do it all the time. I think that if there's anything that is actionable and incredibly hot hot button issue gets reported in the moment, but they do get context and they do get recollections from people who were there after the fact while they're reporting the book. Um, and so I, I think that I think there could be a more productive dialogue between maybe the public and journalists and educating people about just how the whole system works. Um, but I don't think that reporters in general are holding on to the most important details for their books. What kind of books did you review and did you have a choice as to which books you were going to review? <laughs> I did have a choice um, 90% of the time. Uh, the critics there at the Times did too, as does our Ron Charles at the Post. Um, he looks ahead to what's coming out and decides what he, what he wants to cover. Um, yeah, that was, one of the, that was one of the joys of the job was if there was something I was interested in, I could raise my hand for it. And if it wasn't already claimed by someone, I could, I could write about it, which was great. What are some of your favorite reviews that you remember? That I've written? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've had fun writing about, even though I write a lot about fiction, um, I'm also a big music fan and a big sports fan. And so I wrote, um, I wrote a review of Morrissey's autobiography for the New York Times Book Review, which is, uh, he was the lead singer of the Smiths, a figure of some controversy now in his older age. He's, he has some political opinions that um, aren't welcome from his, from his original fans. Uh, but, but that was great fun, just getting to talk about him in print. Um, I reviewed a history of the Dallas Cowboys that was very fun to do, um, a, a biography of Ty Cobb. So those are the things that stick out because they aren't the everyday. Um, I reviewed Zadie Smith's last book, which is maybe more a, a typical thing that I would do, and I, I really enjoyed that too. What's one that you remember that you just didn't want to do or didn't like? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the negative reviews I wrote at the Times. I tried not to be too snarky, um, but it, but occasionally you have to unleash it. Um, there are a couple that come to mind, but they were probably, I, I'd, I'd rather not say only because, uh, sure. yeah, they were. At the but most. your inner Pauline Kale can come out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's part of the fun. I was actually talking to Michael Durdo about this this morning, how they, they, you don't want to rely on it too often because it's actually easier than writing, you know, a nuanced appreciation of something. Writing something that's snarkier or, or more negative comes easier. Well, recently, Mark Whitaker reviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson's newest book and, and took a rather critical view of it. He did. He, you know, Tyson is obviously very well respected as a scientist and a scientific thinker. Um, this book maybe ranged a little farther afield into current affairs and politics and some more philosophical concerns. And, and I'm sure there are people who would disagree with Mark Whitaker's take on it. But he found that it, it didn't have quite the potency of when Tyson is writing about science and his field of specialty, let's put it that way. Here's another cover of Book World, and this is a contemporary issue that we're all knowing about right now, and this is uh, dealing with Russia. What is this? Yeah, this is, this is sort of a summary review of three or four different books about Russia and Russian history that the writer addressed in a, again, a wider lens way that gets at not just the current affairs, but also some of what led up to the current affairs. I think the subtitle says something like the 400-year path to you know, Putin's Ukraine 
decisions. And um, this is like you were saying about the, I don't, it's not a difference between the Times and the Post necessarily, but the Post, I think, uh, feels an obligation to put front and center maybe more often um, big pieces that try to make sense of the world. And there's certainly no lack of of issues that need that these days, Um, whether it's Ukraine and Putin, um, you know, voting rights and democracy, guns and gun culture, reproductive rights and the courts, um, to name three or four of of a hundred that we need to keep our eye on through books. Now, you mentioned more pithy items as well, (laughs) and I want to just show this. This is 10 noteworthy books for October. Is this more of a a pithy social media type item? Um, That could maybe fall under that umbrella, uh, just in terms of its, they're shorter blurbs about things. It's more of a a little bit of a checklist to keep people up to date on what's happening out there. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have lists that are hopefully useful um, and sometimes maybe provocative and argumentative as well. Uh, and, and then we'll be introducing some new recurring features that might be a bit, a bit briefer um, and, and that people can absorb a little faster. Now, John Williams, we recently talked to somebody about Book Talk, which is the part of yes. TikTok, and it's become quite a phenomenon. Do you keep an eye on social media reviews like that? I keep an eye on social media for sure. I spend too much time on Twitter like the average person probably does. Um, But I I can't say that I'm a regular user of TikTok. Um, But I certainly keep up on the coverage of BookTok. And I think that it's important important to know how people are coming to books. Even if, you know, you may have aged out of it. Um, You know, I don't find my books on BookTok, but a lot of people do. Um, A lot of younger readers. And it's, it's a subject worth examining and writing about and thinking about. And we'll be doing that as well. Bestseller list. How does the Washington Post develop its own bestseller list? We get our information from a national organization. Um, we, you know, the, the Times has kind of a secret sauce that they use for their bestseller list. For us, it's a little bit more of a straightforward process, um, and and we don't divide it up into quite so many subcategories. We just give people a, a very general sense of what's going on out there, uh, both hardcover and paperback books. Um, and, and so that's featured every Sunday in print, but can also be found online. Is that from the American Publishers Association? Is I believe it's right? the American Booksellers Association. Booksellers Association? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and the Times really does have a secret sauce, doesn't it, when it comes to... They do. They do. And it, to be honest, I work there, and I can't, I can't tell you what's in it. <laughs> not, 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 not for proprietary reasons, but just I literally can't. One more cover of Book World that we want to show everybody. And this is about a book called Braiding Sweetgrass mm. that kind of took everybody by surprise. It did when it became a bestseller a couple of years ago, and now it's it's one of these juggernauts on the list. It's been there ever since, I think. Um, the timing of this worked out really well for us. We thought that its author, Robin Wall Kimmerer, was worth talking to to, to figure out how this went from essentially uh, an unagented manuscript that she sent to a small independent press um, that I think was 700 or 800 pages when she submitted it uh, that, that went from... No one hearing about it, I think, even after it was published for a couple of years, to becoming a paperback bestseller. Uh, and she was just, a, the day that we put the piece up online, she was named a MacArthur Fellow, which is the so-called Genius Grant, which gives her, I think, now $800,000 over five years to do with as she pleases. So she's certainly someone that, that uh, people are paying attention to. And is the reason she appeared on the front of Bookworld is because, hey, what is this book about? How did it get to the bestseller list, that type of thing? And I, I think that just from, curiosity. Yeah, partly that. And, and I think that sometimes there are, there are things that I like to think of as bestsellers hiding in plain sight. I think this book has a ton of fans, obviously, and they're fervent about it. But I think that there are a lot of general interest readers who don't know about it, even though it's right there at the top of the bestseller list every week for years. So I think it's a bit of 
what is this phenomenon that you may have heard of in passing, but you haven't really examined closer? And, and we like to do that when we can. John Williams, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? For, for personal. Uh, yes. I, well, I just finished um, Rachel Cusk's last novel, which was called Second Place, and I'm now reading a novel by a British woman named Gwendolyn Riley, who, uh, who has a novel called My Phantoms that I'm reading, which is, I think, thinly veiled about her and her mother's relationship. Nonfiction? What have I read recently in nonfiction? Um, you know, I just started a very long biography of Freud that was published many years ago uh, by Peter Gay, who's a very talented historian uh, and biographer. And so I'm 50 pages into it and enjoying it. It'll probably be piecemeal as I go because there's a lot of reading to do for work, so I'm not sure how, how much time it'll take me. What made you pick that book up? I tend to read, uh, I obviously keep up on what's new and, and read a lot of new books, but I, I would say at least half my reading is just filling in gaps that I've wanted to read over the years from everything from a book that came out five years ago to something from 50 years ago. And, and I'll try to bring some of that spirit to the, to the book's job. I think that people like to hear about interesting or great books from any time period, not just what's out now. Now, will Book World go into issues such as the Penguin, Random House, Simon & Schuster merger, or will you stick pretty, pretty closely to book reviews? I think that when... No, we'll definitely be covering more news and features in general. Um, but in terms of the industry itself, if something is at that level, the Penguin, Random House merger. Uh, we'll definitely be covering it in collaboration with uh, the media desk at The Post, which covers things like that as well. But um, we, have, we have expertise to offer there. How would you describe the state of the publishing world today? You know, the, the state of the big publishing world is, is still conglomeration, uh, increasingly so, to, to the point about the merger case um, and, and the three or four biggest publishers just getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, I'll leave the opinionating about that to someone else, but it's a brute fact uh, and an obvious one. I think that the interesting thing for me as someone who does read those older books is that there's a real uh, boom time for smaller uh, publishers who do really interesting things, whether it's bringing back older books or looking for the things that maybe aren't quite as mainstream anymore that used to be, uh, more experimental fiction. Um, I think there are a lot of small houses out there if you go to a place like the National Book Festival or the Brooklyn Book Festival, you walk around and you meet these publishers, um, it seems to be really robust, which is heartening. Will you be reviewing conservative-leaning books in book world? Oh, sure, absolutely, yeah. I, I believe very uh, greatly in diversity of all kinds, um, including intellectual and political diversity. Um, I think that those are things we have to address, wrestle with, um, you know, respect the good arguments when we find them, tell people when we think something is smells a little funny. Um, but there's certainly no uh, political litmus test for whether or not something gets reviewed or thought about. How'd you get into this wor work? Oh, gosh. I, well, I, I want to say that I've just been a big reader since I was young, and so that's essentially why. Um, but I got into it just because I, I wanted to be in magazines or newspapers, and I, I ended up in book publishing for a few years, and just decided that it, the other side of it was more my speed and more what I was interested in, which was writing about books rather than trying to get them published. Uh, and so from there, I became a freelance editor and writer. I started a website, um, which eventually got the notice of someone at the New York Times, and that's how I got there. And so, you know, it, it's a combination of uh, a lot of preparation and obsession, probably, and also a lot of lucky breaks. Well, what is the second pass? The Second Pass is the website that I started in, I think, 2009. It's so long ago now um, that lasted for a couple of years. And it was essentially just my own online literary review where I wrote a lot, but I also 
got people to write for me. Um, and it was it was a mix of both wanting to get that out into the world and also it was, it was kind of a three-dimensional resume to show what I could do as a writer and editor. Um, and so there have been some happy things that happened since then. And where'd you go to college and grow up? I went to college uh, at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. I grew up on Long Island until I was 14, and then my family moved to a suburb of Dallas in, uh, when I was 14 and just starting high school. So I, my, all my family roots are from Long Island. That's what I consider home and, and the Northeast generally. Um, but I spent 12 years in Texas, made a lot of good friends down there, and, and consider it a, a home away from home. So, John Williams, what is kind of that magical combination of book and reviewer for you? Oh, gosh, it can take a few different forms, but that's a great question. Um, what we're going to be trying to do in addition to uh, you know, the core reviews that we do is to find people who have things to say about what the books are about on a broader scale. So, in other words, you give someone a book that is about a cultural trend or it's a report on one company, and yes, they tell you what's in the book, they say whether it's any good or not, but that person also, through their work or through what they do in their life, has something bigger to say about that issue and can give you context, can give you their own opinion. Um, I think someone who can, you know, the old saw is that you want to avoid book reports. So you don't want just someone who can summarize what's in the book for you, but can, who, who can add something and who, if you just read the review, you're entertained, educated. And of course, we're happy that people buy and read books, but we want you to come away from 10 or 11 reviews every Sunday, features, lists, um, having learned something, whether or not you ever go to the book itself. And we should note that you came from the New York Times and the longtime Washington Post staffer, Carlos Lozada, yes. went to the New York Times. Is there anything in that deal there? No, no. <laughs> yeah, someone compared it to a baseball trade online. Um, I don't know. Carlos has his Pulitzer, so I think that we probably added a couple of players to the mix if it was a trade. Um, but Carlos is a brilliant guy. We had great conversations leading up to me taking the job. Um, I'm sure he'll do great things at the Times. Um, and and we look to, you know, add some people to the mix here and and make it a like I said a friendly competition. Well, John Williams, welcome to Washington. John Williams is the new books editor at the Washington Post. Book World is again a standalone section. Thanks, Peter. And you're watching and listening to About Books, Book TV's podcast and program looking at the business of publishing. Well, each Tuesday, dozens of new books are published. Here's a recent sampling. The widow and brother of the late Rush Limbaugh have released a new book focusing on the conservative talk radio pioneers' most memorable on-air moments and commentary. Contributors to the book include former President Donald Trump, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It's entitled Radio's Greatest of All Time. And historian John Farrell is out with his new biography, Ted Kennedy, A Life. Mr. Farrell has also written biographies of former President Nixon, former House Speaker Tip O'Neill, and American Civil Liberties Union attorney Clarence Darrow. Another new book that's just out, Atlantic journalist and former ESPN Sports Center anchor Jamel Hill has released her memoir entitled Uphill. In it, she recounts the backlash she received in 2017 after calling former President Trump a white supremacist in a Twitter post. Now, also each week, national publications publish reviews of new books. Here's two. Publishers Weekly took a look at James Crawford's forthcoming book, The Edge of the Plane, How Borders Make and Break Our World. 
Publishers Weekly writes, quote, Crawford delves into climate change, mass migration, COVID-19, and other contemporary issues interwoven with borders. This is a vital and eloquent reminder that borders control our landscapes, our memories, our identities. And in the Washington Times, Jennifer Harper takes a look at the new book about the career of Rush Limbaugh. Quote, is there still a must-read for Republicans and conservatives out there, she asks? The answer is yes, Ms. Harper writes, of radio's greatest of all time. Jennifer Harper notes that in his time behind the microphone, Rush Limbaugh was heard on 650 radio stations around the nation and drew a devoted audience of 30 million weekly listeners. The book made the top 10 most sold list on Amazon before it was even released this week. Now, you'll see these books and authors featured in the near future on Book TV. Well, coming up on Book TV on our Afterwards program, it's Tufts University professor Chris Miller, who traces the history of microchip technology and how it has become the most critically needed global technology. He was interviewed on Afterwards by Representative Jim Himes, a Democrat of Connecticut, and here's a portion. I was thinking I was going to write a book on uh, the Cold War arms race because one of the uh, key questions that had motivated me was why was it that in the Cold War the Soviet Union could make nuclear weapons, they could make missiles and rockets that shot the first satellite into space, but they could never miniaturize computing power. And that seemed to me an important question for the history of uh, the Cold War. But as I began to dig into that, I came to realize that the answer to that question had to do with the origins of computer chips, which first emerged in uh, missile and rocket guidance systems in the early Cold War. And I came to realize this uh, just as the U.S. government was ramping up its competition with China to control the future of chip technology. And I sort of put these two pieces together, the the history of chips and missile technology and the current U.S.-China competition, and realized that there was an entire history of the last 60 years that you really couldn't understand without knowing much about computer chips. And I admit, when I started, I knew very little, but today I've come to the conclusion that they're really the core to understanding globalization, the balance of military power, and how our economy has changed since the first chips were were invented in the late 1950s. And a reminder that Afterwards airs every Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Book TV. Well, thanks for joining us for About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Book TV will continue to bring you publishing news and author events, which you can always watch online at booktv.org. And a reminder that this podcast and all other C-SPAN podcasts are available on the C-SPAN Now app.